Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come once again, Lord, to worship you and to worship your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who accomplished our salvation, who, after he had paid our sins, sat on the right hand of majesty on high, having inherited a name that is better than, far better than the angels, that in the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this time that we go into your word to hear more about the work of Christ, the work of salvation, the work of how we who are sinners may be made right before a right and just God. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness in all things. We thank you for your grace that has brought us this far, the grace that taught our hearts to fear, the amazing grace that saved wretches like us. Lord, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And John 6. John six twenty two to 29. And this is what the word of the Lord says. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And by way of title, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Or working for the food that perishes. Working for the food that perishes. There's just a lot of titles that you can have from this section. But for us to work the understanding that we need to have, that we may have a proper grasp of what Jesus is teaching, we need to understand what John is teaching overall. The book of John is a Christology and Sociology book. The book of John is a Christology 
and soteriology book. That's a word that's kind of difficult for me to pronounce. What does that mean? Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christology is the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And soteriology is the study of salvation. That is, how does God save sinners? How does God save sinners? The book of John also is about the revelation of the person of Jesus, not as the son of Mary, but as the Logos, as the word of God who was God from the beginning, but who became man, who took human flesh, who added human flesh to himself, for the purpose of accomplishing salvation. And in the process of knowing the person of Jesus, the book of John also reveals to us the nature of God as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the importance of the Son as the center and pivot of all of God's works of creation and recreation. So whether you're talking of the old creation, it's Christ through whom all those things came into being. And if it is the work of recreation, which is the work of salvation, it is still the Son who is at the center of it all. So the worlds were created through him, that is Jesus, and salvation is also accomplished through him. There's nothing that bypasses the Son, whether in creation, salvation, or judgment. There's nothing called evolution. There's nothing that is evolving by itself and giving itself being. There's nothing that is outside God. It's God who has to give everything, its nature and its properties, its life, is all derived from God through the person of Jesus Christ. And because of God's glory in Christ, salvation ultimately comes down to not what men do, but what they think and say about Jesus. For what men think and say about Jesus is more important than what they can do for Jesus. The Jews are stumbling at Jesus because they want to do things for God. They don't realize that what they are asking to have from God cannot be had from them doing it. Men as sinners do not need to do anything for Jesus so as to be accepted by God. Rather, it is Jesus who has to come down from heaven to do something for men that they may be saved. And that's exactly what he has done by his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection. To say salvation is in what men think and say about 
Jesus sound symbol. It sounds like other symbol. That's easy and even silly, if not useless, to a lot of people. And surprisingly, even among professing Christians, they have the same attitude towards salvation. They think salvation is something that is within the bounds of man's ability to perform. And they come to this conclusion because they think somehow they are on the same footing as Jesus. They minimize the person of Jesus. And in the process, they also have a very high view of themselves. They think God exists for them and not that they exist for God. So this thinking that Jesus is just our body (laughs) and we can end salvation by just imitating him. You just be following and looking at Jesus as your example and that's all you need for salvation. That is to underestimate the glory of God is to underestimate God's interest in the person of Jesus Christ and his love for his son. God's chief interest is Christ Jesus. That is God's chief interest. And when we're talking about Christ Jesus as God's chief interest, we are talking about God's glory. Because the glory of God cannot be seen outside the person of Jesus Christ. So salvation is Christological. Salvation is Christ-centered. It has always been Christ-centered and will always be Christ-centered. Because Christ is the center of all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the person of the Godhead who was appointed and qualified from eternity to accomplish the work of salvation. He alone is fitted by his nature as God to have the ability to save sinners. Sinners can only be saved by a person who is God. There's no salvation that can be had if God himself does not accomplish it. And this Jesus, who is the Son of God, and we always like to make a qualification of what we mean by the Son of God, we are saying Jesus is God the Son. Because there are a lot of people who say, oh yeah, of course, Jesus is the Son of God. But they don't mean that Jesus is God. So we make a distinction that Jesus is the son of God and that expression is a statement of deity. Jesus is God the son who shows up to his creation that he may teach them about the way of salvation but his creation did not recognize him then or receive him even now. This creation, his creation, has been plunged into darkness because of sin 
and because of this they need to be born again and Jesus has shown up for this very purpose of giving a new birth to his people fallen people dead in trespasses people and this new birth this new creation is a requirement if any would see, believe, or receive Jesus Christ, who is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not some nation somewhere in Africa or some island. That is some physical boundaries and there's Congress and Senate. The essence of the kingdom of God is the person of Jesus Christ himself. And wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God. And that is why when Jesus was walking in shoe leather, he would say, the kingdom of God is among you. And he was talking about himself. And so all those who shall see the kingdom of God only do so not because of their ancestry or not because their parents were smart enough to figure out Jesus for themselves and for their kids. Or somehow by their own will, free will, were able to dust themselves off of their sin and darkness and came to Jesus. For Apostle John has already said in John 1, 12 to 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And how did they come to believe in his name? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the work of the new creation can only be accomplished by God, just as was the work of the first creation. So those who come to Jesus and receive Jesus only do so because he has given them a new birth, a new creation. Water into wine. So those who are born again by the will of God are the ones who have the ability to receive Jesus. And when people talk about salvation, they make a mistake. They start with man and man's interest. And that is why their theology is messed up. They make assumptions about man's spiritual abilities that are not taught in the Bible. The Bible is clear to say that the fallen man is unable to discern or figure out spiritual things. The fallen man cannot figure out spiritual things by their own resources. And so in this encounter of Jesus with the Jews, we see and hear much teaching about the inability of sinful men to understand spiritual things. 
And the inability is so bad that when the Jews heard about Jesus talking about his work of salvation as the food from heaven, they literally wanted to puke. I'm serious. And we're probably rolling their eyes, rolling their eyes in disgust. They think Jesus is teaching gross theology. Oh, Jesus, that's gross. We can't be eating your body and we can't be drinking your blood. That's cannibalism, Jesus. Jesus, you are out of your mind. So that tells you how much men have ability to understand spiritual things. So at this point in John's narrative, Jesus has fed the 5,000 because that's the background to the conversation. Jesus has fed the 5,000 and has sent the multitude away but also in the process, he has sent his disciples ahead of him to Bethsaida. But as the disciples are on their way to Bethsaida, Jesus raises up a storm against them. Or oh, Jesus will never do that. But no, that's what we learned from Psalm 107, 23 to 32. It's the Lord who raised the storm against his disciples and his disciples staggered all night, rowing and straining with their oars as to try and reach the shore, but to no avail. And we learned that that was showing of men's total inability to save themselves from the storm of God's judgment or even to save themselves in this context. They could not even row their boat to the shore. And that is saying man is not able to get to their desired heaven. All sinners want to go to heaven. But they can't get there. So they come up with formulas that makes heaven reachable by man's own efforts. So they dumb down the gospel. They dumb down Jesus. They make salvation about their own decision-making, and their own doing. But Jesus says, unless I show up, you will never make it to the seashore. You won't make it. You won't make it to heaven unless Jesus shows up. Salvation is the work of the Son of God as the all-sufficient Savior of man in all things. There is no deliverance from anything Unless Jesus says so. Whether it's a minor sickness, people die every day from seemingly minor sicknesses. And yet some people whom you look at and you think, okay, this person is going to be dead. Still kicking 20 years later. Still kicking. Why? It's not because of the pills. It's not because of the hospital that they went to. It's because it's Jesus who is keeping them. So this Jesus who shows up on the sea is not a phantom. He is not a ghost, but is the son of God. And as the waves and the wind worship him, by bowing down and getting calm, the disciples also worship him and say, surely this is the son of God. 
And that was the point. Surely this is the Son of God. So now the great multitude has experienced some great miracle in the hands of Jesus. And they never experienced anything like this. And the closest they knew was what was recorded for them in the scriptures about manna from heaven. Which is going to feature a little later in this discussion because the subject is going to turn to manna and Moses. However, they approach the experience politically, fleshly, and materially. They think Jesus is the king, the prophet, and savior whom they have been waiting for to deliver them not from their sins, but from their physical enemies, the Romans. At this time, if you remember, the Jews are under the rule and dominion of the Romans, and they desperately want to overthrow them. And so, seeing the display of power by Jesus, they determined to their way of thinking, this is the guy that we need. This is the king that we need. We have to make him king by force. (laughs) But the Lord read their thoughts. And so he disappeared from them. However, the search for him continued. The search and rescue mission continued. They had to find Jesus. The Jews are determined to find Jesus that he possibly may pull some more tricks and miracles for them and feed them. And so, we'll pick up from the book of John, chapter 6, verse 22. Chapter 6, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So apparently on the day of the feeding, there had been two boats that were dogged. And the crowd was closely following the movement of Jesus and his disciples. They were paying close attention to what was happening. They had also noticed that Jesus had not gone in with the disciples. So apparently, the crowd also knew Jesus' disciples. And so they were by the shore and were coming through the both the arrival section, <laughs> they had an arrival section from Tiberias. So they are coming through the boats to see if they could lay their eyes on Jesus or his disciples. And after they had determined that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they decided to go look for him. And so they got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. 
And in verse 25, this is what it says. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? When they found him, they asked him, when did you get here? That's not the question that they meant to ask. Given the background that we've been given, they've been looking at the bots, and the conclusion from John's narrative is that they knew that there were two bots there, and one of them was not there, but only one bot was there. And they also saw that Jesus did not live with the disciples. So the issue with them is not when Jesus got there. The issue is, how did you get here? How did you get here, Jesus? We already checked out the bus. And there was only one left. And we saw your disciples leaving. And you were not in there. How did you make it here? (laughs) So they come and they address him as rabbi. Just like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But Jesus is not going to entertain this law view of himself. Especially in the light of what he has just performed. Okay, We need to pay attention to that. Jesus does not entertain to be called rabbi. It got Nicodemus in trouble. And it's going to get these guys in trouble. Because Jesus is more than a rabbi. And he has demonstrated what no rabbi is able to do. So they can't come to him with a confession that he is just a rabbi. But there's more to the statement that the Jews say to Jesus. If you read it again, you get the sense that the Jews were also saying, Jesus, do not just decide to go to places without letting us know. Without letting us know where you are going. Don't you know we need you to make some breakfast sandwiches for us? And, and that question served both as an expression of disappointment in Jesus and in some way a rebuke. They were actually rebuking Jesus for just disappearing without letting them know where his next stop was. Disappointment that Jesus who just to their way of thinking just up and leave without telling them about his whereabouts and a rebuke to say Don't do that again. Don't do that again. Don't you know we have a plan with you? And if you continue with this attitude, we'll change our minds. (laughs) We need a more reliable king, Jesus. A king who tells us ahead of time what he is going to do. And we need a king who is answerable and accountable to us. When did you get here? Brother Robert. (laughs) Listen to verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I said to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
just as the Lord did with Nicodemus, he did not really entertain and answer the question. He does not answer the question. They are interested in the means of transportation that got him to the other side, but the Lord ignores them. He purposefully ignores them. And he turns the tables on them. And Jesus gives us and them a theological motivation behind their seeking him. This is the matter. He says, You seek me not because of the signs that I performed, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So Jesus gives us two kinds of motivation of why people follow him. He says, number one, some follow him for the signs. Which in this context was positive and welcome as far as Jesus is concerned. Because the thinking would be that faith that would have been elicited the faith that would have been elicited by the signs, though not the most commendable way of coming to Jesus, was acceptable. Following the signs, that is the miracles, would have piqued more interest in the person and work of Jesus. And that would have been a more honorable and acceptable spiritual endeavor. But they were instead thinking of just the physical benefits that Jesus was bringing. They were not looking for Jesus for the sake of knowing him, loving him, or understanding him. But for the sake of what he was bringing. They were crass materialists like many in our modern day church. And if you want to picture it. It is like those relationships and marriages that are cemented by the glue of money. But as soon as the money runs out and disappears, suddenly there's trouble in the house. The husband or wife disappears too. The people who went into this relationship that was driven by externals were only glued together by the externals. There was never any commitment to the relationship. The commitment was only coming for the sake of the benefits that such a union would give. And so the Jews had this kind of motivation with respect to their idea of Jesus. They are thinking, we are going to follow this guy as long and only because of the free food that he is giving us. And when we have him as our king, we won't even need to work. And we won't even need to cook. He is the best vending machine of free goodies that we have ever seen 
or heard of. But Jesus is not impressed by them. He tells them in their face that their motivation for following him was messed up. And this has not changed in our very day. The majority of the mega churches are built on this foundation. They are built on the foundation of Jesus as the soda and chocolate vending machine. Who constantly spews out free goods on demand. Jesus is portrayed and pictured as this giant, I mean like really giant, giant vending machine in the lobby in heaven somewhere that one just comes to, pushes the button, or use some formula of Jesus' name and things just start dropping out at the bottom. Just at the bottom, right? So Jesus is viewed not as the sovereign God, but as some mindless, oversized, sander-type person who is drenched with free goods for people to come and pick. But as he stands, he is also desperate. So desperate to give people free things. Jesus is looking for friends. He is looking for people to come to heaven. But it is they who are refusing to get into the boats. <laughs> they are the ones who are refusing to get into the boats and to go or come where he is. The free will churches are built on this second platform of the understanding of Jesus. The word of faith, name it and claim it, churches are built on this sinking sand platform. It's sinking sand. They're calling people to a foundation that is very shaky. So what is that teaching? The teaching is that Jesus is there for people's use. To use Jesus as they please as long as one tags his name to whatever thing they want. And many have drunk so deep from this well of bad teaching. That they really get offended if you call them out on it. They get offended. According to this vending machine theology, that's what I'm going to call it, and that's what it is. Problems with marriages, jobs, employment, health, children, are only so because you are punching the wrong cord. You're punching the wrong cord on the vending machine, or you do not just have enough faith. You are not exercising enough faith. So faith is evidenced and validated by how much things one can get from Jesus. So what you see is the so-called men of God who lead these churches, they have to put a picture, an image that they are walking in the blessing. They have to walk in the blessing. They have to look fly if anybody has to believe them. You, before I believe your God, I have to see what your God is doing in your life. Not what your God has done 
to save you from your sin. And coupled to this vending machine theology, of course, is the sowing of seed. If you sow seed to Jesus through this ministry, he will give you whatever more you intended to get when you sowed. So the teaching goes out something like this. I am believing Jesus for a new car. And so I am going to sow $200, $500, $1,000. And in turn, God is going to react to my sowing and act according to my command by blessing me. So now the sinner sits in the command sender. And God has to listen to what the sinner is saying. Or or else he gets in trouble. (laughs) God is now obligated to answer to the sinner. And as we know, this theology is false. It's man-centered. It's sinner-centered. But this is the way to grow big congregations. This is the formula to grow big congregations. But that is not the way of the master. That is not the way of the Jesus of John. The Jesus of John comes and says, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you. And that statement is a statement of rebuke and disapproval. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man be born again, they will no way see the kingdom of God. And truly, truly, I say to you, you are following me for the wrong things. That's a rebuke. So Jesus, in response to the Jews, says, there are two kinds of work. There's one kind that is profitable and the other kind that is unprofitable. This is what he says in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God has set his seal. Two kinds of work. Two kinds of outcome. There's a working that is an exacting of effort to cultivate and produce a harvest, a crop, or a food in the flesh that does not profit, or a laboring to produce a different kind of food which endures or leads to eternal life. So we'll begin with the working that working the food that perishes. Working the food that perishes. The Lord commands and instructs. And says, there is a working by sinful man that produces food that perishes. And what that means is it produces benefits of a temporary nature that spoil. It produces dead works. It does not produce salvation. See that the discussion is purposefully put in the context of food. Why? Because food is for sustenance of physical life. Without food, one dies. And thus food 
is a necessity of continued physical life and existence. And the Jews were working for this kind of food. The working of this kind of food is the parallel of seeking Jesus for the few of loves or working for one's own salvation in the bigger scope of things. That's the issue. The issue here is the discussion of salvation. How are you going to have salvation? So Jesus gives different kinds of food, the physical and the spiritual. He has given the Jews physical food, and they get fixated on the physical and miss the spiritual aspect of what that food represented. It has been admitted that both the physical food and blessings do come from the hand of Jesus. But these are not the reason for following him. He says, following him for what he dispenses is working for food that perishes. All physical food, all physical things have no life in themselves, even if it's coming from the hands of Jesus. It all perishes it spoils. So all the blessings that we may have in this life are not signs of eternal life. They are not signs of possessing eternal life. That is all things that perish. They are things that rust, that can be eaten by moth and weevils. However, there is a different kind of working that gives life, a working that gives food, that endures to eternal life. But this food does not come from the physical exertion of man. The son of man, which is the self-designated messianic title of Jesus, the son of man is the one who dispenses this kind of food. And this food will be given to them because on him, according to Jesus, on him the Father, God has set his seal. What does that have anything to do with the food that we are talking about? Why would Jesus leap from the food to God the Father setting his seal on him. Because this is necessary to a proper understanding of the kind of food that Jesus brings. The Lord Jesus here is already talking about the cross. The Lord Jesus is dropping breadcrumbs of the cross. We'll work it. I'll show you some understanding. Jesus is the person on whom God the Father has appointed and approved to accomplish the work that gives life. He has the seal as the one who works, not them. He has the seal. And if you know this, the seal was for authenticity and approval. 
the Egyptians, for example, among other pagan nations and cultures, they had a practice of marking their bulls that had to be slaughtered as sacrifices to their gods. And these bulls had to be carefully screened to see if they had any defects. Even the Jews would do this with their own sacrifices. They would not just go and grab a sacrifice before they inspected it. They inspected the sacrifice to see if it had any blemishes. But if it was clean and without any blemish, then it was marked out. Okay. So once they passed the inspection, they were sealed. That is, they were set aside and were marked to die. And this practice is still in the culture that I grew up in. I actually know this firsthand. Every family name has a bull that carries the family name. Like if you go to where I grew up, there should be a bull by the name of Guyo. Okay. It carries the family name and that does not just happen. Rituals have to be performed for it to carry the name. Okay. But once the rituals have been performed and the bull has been, as it were, anointed, it can't do any work. And no other bull can carry the family name until this one dies. This one has to die. Okay. And it is supposed to die at the request of the ancestral spirits who speak through a medium spirit, who happened to be one of my uncles. Okay. Typically, he would get sick and would go to a witch doctor or the spirit could just talk to him directly and say, okay, it's time to offer the bull. But in any case, the bull had to be slaughtered if disaster had to be Avoided for the family because this is covering the whole family. Okay. But here's the point. The point is that once the bull had been marked out as the family bull, it was also marked out to die. And Jesus comes and says, God the Father has also put a seal and marked out Jesus as the one who has been approved for men to look to for salvation, and to die for the sins of his people. Jesus has been irreversibly marked out to be the only one marked out as the truth, marked out as the way and the life by whom all men can approach the Father. No man can come to the Father but by him. Why? Because God has put his seal. Not by the works that they want to perform, but by Jesus on whom the seal has been put. So that's what I believe Jesus was saying. Because he's going to expand that theology with the giving of his body and his blood. In the same context. In verse 28. Therefore they say to him, What shall we do? So that we may work the works of God. 
The Jews' hearts were hardened to see the spiritual significance of the sign that was in the bread. All they saw was just some Panera bread. And they missed the significance of the miracle. And the person who performed it. So the Jews determined that they would want to know how they could personally do the work that produces food that does not perish. So they, they want to find if Jesus has some pasteurization technique for them. They did not get that. They did not get that it is the son of man that gives the food that endures to eternal life. Salvation has to be given freely. Because remember what Jesus said at the beginning? He says, the food that the Son of Man gives. They did not hear the giving. It has to be given. Salvation can only be given. And it can only be given by the Son on whom the Father is set his seal. Salvation is given freely without any cost or contribution from those who are being saved. The Jews are under the law. And they could, of course, use a few more tips on what else they could do to lock down eternal life. They want a particular work to do because they are already so steeped in doing. They want to be given something that they can continually do so that God will be impressed by them and accept them. So they say, what then, Jesus, do we need to do by the works of the law? That's what they're saying. What then do we need to add to what we have been doing by the works of the law? And that is a good and needful question that all sinners should be asking. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? It's a good question. It is the same question put differently that was asked by the rich young ruler to Jesus when he came and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Everybody wants to do. <laughs> Brother Robert, that is the most significant question you have to answer, as we always say. What shall you, a mortal sinful being, do to work the works of God that God may accept you? That is the question that we have to answer before we die. And that is the question that we are always trying to answer every time that we open the Bible. And churches would be different and the preaching would be different if these questions were being asked. And asked more frequently. And proper answers being offered. Because the Bible is not silent on the question and is not silent on the answers. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. The Jews asked Jesus, for what works? 
see that it's in plural. It's plural. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. It's plural. What works should we do? And Jesus says, no. It is not about works in plural, but there is a work singular. That has to be done. There's only one work required of a sinner by God. And it is to believe in him whom he sent. (laughs) The work of God is not what we pile up as merit or credit. So as to exchange for eternal life. Rather, the work of God is saying, what does God require of a sinner that they may have life? That's what he's saying. And the single work that God requires is not that the sinner do something, but that they believe in Christ. To believe in Jesus is the work of God. God is the one who has to do that work in you to cause you to believe in him. So Jesus does a word play with work and now explains the spiritual aspect of the work. He says, the food that endures to eternal life is not had by physical exertion as the Jews were thinking, or their own obedience to the law, as they were thinking. And we already see the beginning of another misunderstanding that's going to be unfolding in this conversation. The Jews, as I said, they're thinking, maybe we may have to get some agriculture implements and go to work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or do some more laws. I mean, you already have 600 something laws to do. And, and, and you think, <laughs> okay, just give me 10 more. <laughs> I already have 613. 10 more will do me good. <laughs> but the Lord says, the work of God is believing in him whom he has sent. And this is a very radical definition of work. It is not saying when you believe, you are believing by your own resources. It's not saying, Brother Robert, that you get merit from your working your faith. Because you hear people say, oh, my faith is weak these days. <laughs> my faith is so weak. <laughs> Jesus says, oh, uh, if you had faith as small as a master seed, you tell this mountain to move right into the sea. This is not saying that faith in Jesus is self-produced. Jesus is saying the faith that gives eternal life is given by God. It's given as a work of God. God has to give you the faith to come to Christ. God has to give you faith by a new birth. As we learn from John 1.13. Born by the will of God and not by the will of man. So the work that leads to eternal life is the work of God alone. And one enters into this work 
not by physical effort or anything that they themselves do or bring, but in believing in the Son. So salvation then is not really about what you stopped doing or what you started doing. Salvation is given. God has to give it to you because you don't deserve it. And because you can't do it. It's impossible. It's beyond your ability to reach by stopping from doing things and starting doing other things. It's way much more than what you do. Okay? Salvation requires one who is God to give it to you as a gift. Because to have salvation is to have eternal life. And life is only in one who has it by nature. God and Jesus have life intrinsic to themselves. And the only way that you can ever get that life is if they give it to you for free. You can never buy the life of God. Okay? It's too costly. That's what we learned from Psalm 49. Okay? So a few more things to note. This work is the work of God, which means it is not by man's design. It's not by the will or power, knowledge or wisdom of man. Secondly, the work is believing in a particular person whom God has sent. You have a particular person. You have an object of faith. Salvation then is only had by faith in Jesus. Someone will come and say, you have to repent of all your sins for you to be saved. If your repentance is dependent on you, you're tossed. <laughs> because then your repentance has to be perfect. But it's too late for you to ever do anything perfect because you were born and conceived in sin. So perfection is already beyond your ability to reach, whether you do anything or not. And that's the reason why salvation has to be given. And if salvation was by works, this was one of the best opportunities for God to say, this is the work of God, is to tithe. This would have been it. This would have been the perfect opportunity to say, Brother Stan, this is what you need to do. You have to pay indulgence. Pay your indulgence, and then you have eternal life. Okay? But it doesn't work like this. All those things appeal to the flesh. They are things that are seemingly within our abilities to do, but they are fleshly. And Jesus says, no, the real work that produces food that leads to eternal life is to believe in him. And so Jesus again puts himself at the center of life and death as we began. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is in the center. And he has always been at the center of all of God's works. So the food that produces and leads to eternal life 
has to be given by him. And Jesus later is going to identify himself as that food. Because when you eat food, you are getting fuel and life from the food. And Jesus says when it comes to spiritual matters, you have to eat him as it were. And this is given as a picture of how God gives life through the person of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is the one who does the actual working of the food that gives life. But why does a sinner need this food that Jesus gives to have eternal life? Because a sinner has no righteousness in themselves. And so they need to be justified through the merits of Jesus. A sinner needs to know God and Jesus Christ if they have to have eternal life. So those who deny that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father have no eternal life. And Oprah is one of them. Okay, There's no joking matter. Oprah cannot be redeemed by her money. The psalmist told us again that the redemption of a person is too costly and we should cease trying forever. You can never redeem yourself with your money. Jesus says the work of God is to believe in him. And we have established that Faith itself has no merit. You don't believe in your faith. But there are people who actually put hope in their faith. Okay, Faith in faith. Or I have faith in my faith. Your faith is not the object of salvation. Faith is an instrument. It's a means. It's a conduit. It's a channel through which the blessings of God in Christ are channeled. The act of faith is itself the work of God in the believer and it comes as a gift. Okay? God causes a person to believe. God has to cause you to believe. And when God causes sinners to believe, they always believe in him whom he sent. Okay? So how do you know you are saved? You believe in Jesus. You believe in him whom he sent. So what do you believe in the one who was sent? You believe everything that he says about himself. If you deny that Jesus is God, you are not believing in him whom God sent. And you are not saved. This is not hard to understand. It's very simple. Salvation is only in the one whom God sent. And people are only able to believe in Jesus because God is the one who works in them to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God who creates a new heart in man. It is God who quickens men and makes them spiritually alive. It is God who gives a new birth that they may lay hold of the person of Christ. 
and the one who lays hold of Christ by faith is justified from all things. Justified. Completely. And that is the gospel of grace. And some who are hearing may never have heard this before. May still be thinking, well, there is some particular work that I need to do before I die. I have to make it right between me and God. I have to do something. I have to make it right. And they base their making it right with God on what they feel. They are looking at themselves and say, my conscience is clean, is feeling okay because of what I've done for God. That's deception. Your conscience should only be clean when you have rested in Christ. And it's only Christ that God has accepted. And if God has accepted Christ, he has accepted all those who are in him. So the only true way to know that you are saved is to believe in Jesus. That sounds like very easy to do. For a lot of people. And so they want to add more to that. So that they can feel good about what they are doing. But Jesus says. This is the work of God. That you believe in him. Whom he has sent. This is the gospel. And this is the beauty of this gospel of grace. Because what that is saying is. Someone who has never heard the gospel, they can believe right now and be saved. They they have not enough time to be good. It's too late for them to be good. But the gospel of grace says it's done, it's finished, it's accomplished, it's completed, it's perfected. Just believe in him whom he has sent. Because all things consist in him. That's our gospel. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne. Lord, we praise you and worship you for your son. And for revealing him to us. That we may come and believe him. For that is the work of God. To believe in him whom he has sent. And Jesus Christ is he who was sent. Is he who was marked out, sealed and approved as the only savior of sinners. And Lord, may you cause us to not get tired of hearing this truth. For there is no other name given in heaven, on earth, or underneath the earth by which man can be saved, save for the name of Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, that Jesus was revealed to us and shall be revealed to us in his fullness in due time. But for now, Lord, we say, by faith. For as the scriptures say, without faith it's impossible to please God. And, Lord, we pray that you be pleased in us for the sake of your name and for the sake of Christ. May you be with your people, Lord, I pray. May you remind them one or two things that we have learned today. 
May you keep them as they sojourn and waiting for the arrival and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may you keep them from stumbling. May you strengthen those who are weak. Keep those who are on the edge because of their sin or the sins of others. Lord, may you deliver them for the sake of your name. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.